Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars, LawPay. Hi, I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, a senior writer with the ABA Journal. In the more than 20 years I've spent talking to well-known attorneys who love their work, I've learned that many have great advice on matters both in and outside of the law, and sometimes I'll ask them about things they know now that they wish they had known when starting their careers. I wanted to share some of that advice with listeners, and so we've created a special series, Asked and Answered, Lived and Learned. In this episode, I'm speaking with Mia Yamamoto. A Vietnam veteran and criminal defense attorney in Los Angeles, she is also a transgender woman who came out in 2003. Today, she's speaking with us about presenting as her authentic self in court and with clients and what that's meant to her. Welcome to the show, Mia. Thank you. Thank you. So before you came out as transgender, were there some things that you were very frightened about what would happen, but then after you did come out, your fears, some of them maybe didn't come to fruition? Can you tell me about that a bit? Oh, sure. I mean, the fear I had was going to be the level of rejection, I guess, revulsion and and exclusion that I was going to experience. I actually called a transgender lawyer, the only one I knew of uh, that belonged to the American Bar Association, and uh, she told me to be prepared to lose a great deal, a large percentage of your uh, professional contacts and professional uh, friends, family, and clients. Uh, She told me she hadn't worked in a year and that her wife was supporting her after she came out. So I was sort of ready for a pretty rough transition. So that was what I was the most concerned about. Of course, because I had clients, I was most concerned about compromising their cases in any fashion, you know, Mm -hmm. that my transition would somehow be detrimental to their defense. Those were high up in my list. And then, of course, bringing disappointment and even rage from my family, feeling a level of shame that I was bringing upon my family, my community, my society, (laughs) whatever. Mm -hmm. There had never been a transgender trial lawyer in the courts of Los Angeles. And it it was something that I had no precedent for. So I had no idea how it was going to work out. I definitely knew the level of um, contempt that was expressed for transgender people for my entire career from both the courts, um, certainly the police, and even the other defendants and inmates. So the level of violence and um, certainly exclusion that was going to be experienced was something that I feared. How did you build up the strength within yourself to go ahead and come out? I mean, despite everything that you just just mentioned, how, how did you find it within yourself to do what was best for you to be your authentic self? You know, part of it was getting old. I mean, certainly I turned 60 in, in 2003, and that was the moment when I said, you know something? If I don't come out, then I'm a phony. Hmm. And if I can't come out because of fear, then I'm a coward. And I couldn't live with myself continuing with that. I looked around and I said, you know something? There's no transgender people anyplace in my community, my profession, certainly not locally. And I don't care if somebody shoots me the day after I transition. I'm going to transition. I will die as a woman. And that moment, I remember thinking, no, I can't live a completely false life. I refuse to do that. And whatever the consequences are, I'm ready to accept them. So the first people I went to, I went to my family. I felt like they were the first, the most important people that were counting on me to be me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I came out to each one of them individually. And uh, of course, they were troubled by it. I think it, it was a very disturbing thing to lay upon my family. They, most of them reached some level of somewhat um, <laughs> uncomfortable detente with me and what, what, uh, what I was doing. I had one brother 
We call him Pancho, even though his name is Greg. He's the second, the oldest brother, my dad, like about eight or, or nine years older than me. And he said, don't you ever talk to me again. Keep away from me. Keep away from my family. I think you're disgusting and contemptible. And you know, it's interesting, I guess, because I've known him so long. I really didn't, it really didn't bother me very much because he's always been sort of a bigot. Mm-hmm. And I told him, and this is, a, this is a true story. I actually told him, I said, well, Ponch, if I'm not going to ever talk to you again, I want to thank you. You were the rebel of the family. You were the one that taught me I didn't have to be what everybody wanted me to be. Thank you for that. Goodbye. I haven't spoken to him since. Mm. And that was in 2003. But then everybody else, they're sort of coming around. I mean, and even him, like, he hasn't contacted me. He never will. I mean, mm. uh, I love him dearly. I wish him the best. But um, this is his problem. It's really not mine. His three children are musicians, and they play in bands with me. We've been really close um, forever and uh, through this whole thing. So it wasn't really possible for me to keep away from his family. <laughs> right. I think I want to pick up on what you just said, how this is his problem, it's not mine. I mean, that's a really wonderful way to look at a situation for you to be your true self and if other people don't accept it. But I think it takes a lot of strength inside to get to that point, to not want to please people sometimes or, you know, be concerned about pleasing yourself. Did that take some work on your end? Yeah, definitely. I think even coming from my family and my heritage, being Japanese-American, being a minority lawyer in a community where you were expected to be exemplary and that anything that you did in a negative way would somehow reflect badly on your whole community, on your whole family. So a sense of obligation has always been a part of what I'm about. So certainly my obligations to them, and then I felt like the next level of obligation were my clients. I felt like I had to come out to them individually and let them know that if they couldn't continue with me, that I would completely understand that and that I would find a super good lawyer for them no matter what. And the clients were amazing. I mean, they, they were just amazing. The, the level of embrace that I, I got from them was absolutely the most astonishing part of it. I didn't expect that. Um, some of these guys are very tough dudes, tough young dudes, gang uh, kids. My work takes me into that kind of a milieu a lot. And um, they were amazingly quick to accept. So that definitely blew me away. And do you do court-appointed work in addition to private cases or both? Or um, No, I just do private cases. But I did do appointed work. Yeah, I did. I did appointed work. I had I did seven different death penalty cases. I see. And they're they're almost all appointed. It's almost impossible to get privately retained on a death penalty case. Right. So right. yeah, I did a lot of indigent. I was a public defender for ten years. I got my postgraduate education at the public defender's office. Ah, I see. Certainly the proudest thing I've ever done working for those folks there and working with public defenders is. Um, was absolutely the proudest moments of my career, certainly. I love the public defenders. I'm one to my soul, (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss expectations based on male stereotypes that are sometimes present in the criminal court system. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, You can accept client payments online, via email, or in person, no equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com slash podcast to sign up and get your first three months free. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Warren, and you're listening to a special edition of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, which focuses on professional and personal advice from experienced lawyers. My guest today is Mia Yamamoto, a criminal defense attorney who is a transgender female. So, Mia, sometimes 
in the criminal courts arena, I think there's an expectation that to be successful, you need to have behavior that we tend to stereotype as male. But at the same time, sometimes women might get negatively judged for that behavior, like perhaps something that comes to mind is taking up a lot of space or raising your voice to get your point across. How has this behavior gone and that stereotype, has that been an issue in your career? And how have you dealt with it to be your authentic self? Well, absolutely. I think there's always been a level of male hegemony and male uh, domination, given the history, certainly of the courts. So the introduction of women in the trial courts is certainly something I witnessed coming up. And um, it was interesting that some of the ones that were at least viewed to be the most successful were, you're right, they were viewed by male qualities, like um, raising your voice and, like you're saying, occupying space and doing all those kinds of things. And anybody who was in any way other than that was seen as weak. But it's interesting to me to start witnessing what a soft power can bring to the court and be successful and prevail. Is There's a certain approach and certainly a much more holistic way of presenting a case and representing someone that can bring people around to your point of view without beating them over the head in order to achieve that. So I think that um, the expectations are changing. And while they were changing, they certainly were that way. You had to be this tough, rough, swaggering individual to be seen as somebody who was going to be persuasive or successful in a courtroom. And I think I've seen a change in that to some extent. I think that there's ways to present in alternate sort of perspectives and feelings that can be just as effective. From what I've seen, as a matter of fact, the level of theater that women can bring to the court room is a different way of presenting something and a way of bringing it that is more attuned to feelings and comfort. So there are qualities that, to me, are are being brought to the courtroom with the advance of women in, in the profession that are long overdue and are turning out to be revolutionary in the way that the law is is embraced holistically. How would you describe your style in the courtroom? Well, I don't see that that I have a style. I mean, I think that everybody who tries cases have to has to be themselves. I've always believed that the most authentic thing that people can do is present the case absolutely from your point of view. The jury, it's interesting from my point of view, I look at the juries and I see them as well, of course they're really multidimensional. Most juries are going to come to a point of making a decision about the case, and then the rest of the case will be occupied by sort of selective, selecting the evidence that supports their view. It's sort of the way bias is formed, <laughs> in a mm-hmm. sense, but it's a dynamic process in the courtroom. So my style, I would say, is certainly not very flamboyant. I don't. I started off that way. <laughs> I think everybody sort of emulates your heroes, uh-huh. and you have a much more doing everything with a flourish. Who was your hero when you started out? My hero was actually in the trial courts. It was, you've never heard of him. His name is Charlie Gessler. He was he was a great trialer in the Los Angeles Public Defender's Office. He was the most humble. Oh, I think I've heard of him. Yeah, he was the most, I mean, they have an award named after him now, but I mean, I came into that office and, and I watched this guy work and you know, around each other working. And I had just never seen anything like it. I'd never seen anybody who had that kind of focus and that kind of devotion, devotion to his clients' lives and their futures, it was the most inspirational thing I ever saw. Mm. And 
I used to watch him all the time and I'd listen to him whenever he gave talks and that type of thing. He was, I guess people would probably call him overzealous. He was so far gone, <laughs> in my opinion, that he and his wife would go down to the client's family's homes and have coffee with them on Friday night. And he would call <laughs> this his jail night. Uh-huh. He would either go to the jail by himself, couldn't bring his wife with him. <laughs> but I once came to the office on Saturday. And, you know, people who work in the public trainer's office who work on Saturdays, they're, they're the best of the breed. because <laughs> mm-hmm. They're going above and beyond the call of duty for their clients. Sure. And so I go by Charlie's office and there's this woman sitting on the floor. And I said, excuse me, that's Charlie Gessler's office. What are you doing there? She says, oh, I'm Charlie's wife. And um, he gets very disorganized. So I come to his office on Saturday mornings and I help him organize his funds. And I'm thinking to myself, I have never met a public defender's wife that came down to the office to help them out with their cases. And I said, I told her, I said, you know, Charlie Gessler is the greatest trial lawyer I have ever, ever encountered. But you are a saint. In any event, so, you know, Charlie admired him and his influence and his effect on people was just like that. He could get other people to just absolutely go overboard fighting for their clients. Ah, that's that's a really important skill to have. So mm-hmm. if a lawyer is transgender, but he or she hasn't come out yet because they're are afraid it will hurt their career or their personal life. Yes. Do you have advice for them? It's the same advice. You know, be yourself and fight for yourself. Authenticity is far more important than almost anything else that you're gonna you can encounter in the world. Without it, what is your life? And so start by that. Be yourself and then fight for yourself. Because in fighting for yourself, you're fighting for everybody else that's going to be coming after you. And it's a worthwhile fight. So that's what I've always told people is you got to follow your heart. You got to be yourself. And then you got to fight for yourself. Very good advice. And that's everything we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Mia. It's my pleasure. Thank you kindly. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and check out our other special edition Lived and Learned podcast in the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered series.